Uh, if you'd like to, you can turn your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. That's where we'll be reading from this evening. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, there are few who find it. Morning, church. Good to see you all out tonight. Hope you had an enjoyable Sunday afternoon. Did you get your nap in? You can just go this one. The battery's dead. It's fine. There we go. Can you hear me, Anna? Do you listen to me, Anna? <laughs> Two totally different questions, right? <laughs> all right, all right. We're going to um, go into part two tonight, dealing with our uh, special series. That's why our young people are out of the auditorium tonight. If you're visiting with us, we started last week. Uh, doing just a short three-part series on the problem and then the solution to uh, pornography. And if you missed last week, you can get that on the on the website where we spent a lot of time dealing with the fact that um, pornography is real, pornography is harmful, and pornography is powerful. And we, um, after sort of setting the stage last week with um, what pornography really is and, and, and the reality of it in our culture and our world, um, we're going to move in tonight into um, another phase to try to lay some groundwork of some biblical truths that's going to move us into the third and final week where we're going to talk about a way forward, a healthy path to redemption in this problem. And so I want to remind you again of the objectives. What we're really trying to do um, in this is to provide to those who may be trapped or having a trouble with the problem of pornography, the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ that there is hope and that there is recovery, that there is um, the ability and the strength and the power in Christ to overcome. And we're going to get to that and we're going to um, try to empower you with that, with all the things that you might need, information, uh, resources, and most certainly the gospel of Jesus Christ. This problem is not an internet filter problem. This is a spiritual problem, just like every other sin in the world. It begins, like Jesus said, with the brokenness of our heart. The second thing we're trying to do is uplift those who have a loved one who, are, who may be entrapped into this. So this may be a spouse that feels um, you know, a little bit isolated in this problem or maybe has some frustration or anger over this problem in their spouse. And so they need encouraged. They also need supported and how they can help. And thirdly, our objective is to, is to cultivate and empower us here as a body to be a place that fosters recovery. You know, recovery is not a word we use a lot in our church settings, but it probably should become a word that we use more frequently and that we are a group of people that promote, that encourage, that support, that help edify in the process of recovery because our problems, all of us, might not fall into categories that naturally identify with the term recovery, but all of us 
can definitely benefit from a spirit, an attitude of recovery. And that requires us to have the humility that the, only the gospel can produce. And that Jesus Christ went to the cross for not just certain sins or not just ones that we would deem more um, ugly or, or bad, but all of our sins. And the gospel of Jesus Christ makes us both humble and grace-filled and confident. And so we'll move forward with that. So this week we're going to do two things, just two things. Last week we did three, but that does not mean it would only be like two-thirds the length. We're only going to do two things this week. The first thing I want to do is unmask with you the lie of pornography, okay? So we're going to take the mask off of pornography and let you see the lie that's behind it that makes it so powerful. So we're going to go back into what we finished with last week, talking about porn being very powerful, and we're going to empower those or, or hopefully strengthen those that might be struggling with this or those of you that are not but know somebody to equip you to help. We're going to show you what the lie is behind pornography and what makes it so have such a stronghold on us. And then the second thing we want to do is reveal the truth, the biblical truth about the purpose of sex. Uh, talk a little bit about that. And so um, the subject tonight can be a little bit uncomfortable, but I think we can work through it together and hopefully be blessed by it. So again, our prayer is that those that with these truths will be ready to discuss a way forward and a path to healing next week um, and continue to grow from there. So we finished last week saying, like I said, that pornography is very powerful. And as a quick review, we talked, first of all, about biologically how powerful it is. That um, like any other drug that hijacks your brain, pornography does the very same thing. In your um, limbic brain, which is where you experience life, where you have emotion, where you have urges, where you have um, hungering and thirsting, where you have feelings and experience. It's where you experience life. There's a thing called the reward pathway in your brain. And basically what it does is it creates a pathway that releases positive chemicals that make you feel pleasure when you do things that either sustain your life or create life to protect your genes or reproduce your genes. And so if you are hungry and you go and you find good food and you eat that food, your brain releases a chemical and it says, hey, when you're hungry, you should come back and do this very same thing again because it's good for you. And that's why you experience pleasure. When you um, have lunch or maybe a picnic with your family and you enjoy time together with those that you know and you love, your brain says, hey, you should do this again because this is positive for you. Well, the same is true for anything like reproduction or sex. And so what the brain does is it releases that dopamine that says, do this again because you enjoyed it. And what things like drugs, uh, for instance, cocaine or even pornography, what they do is they flood your brain with an overwhelming amount of dopamine. And your brain can't handle all of that dopamine, and so it begins to cut off the receptors because it just can't handle that much dopamine. And what happens is then you either need to escalate your pornography use into more extreme pornography, or the other problem is that things that used to bring you pleasure no longer do because the receptors have been cut off. Basically, the reward pathway was intended by God to bless you, to give you pleasure as you satisfy God-created desires in you in a godly way. It was meant to bless you. But this part of us has been turned into a curse in many ways. 
What Satan has done is he has taught us how to find pleasure without real godly satisfaction. He's taught us to take our God-given desires and go search for pleasure without any of the work that is involved in the process. That's what drugs do and that's what pornography does. Now that's biologically. Now spiritually it has power in this way. And this is the root of all strength of sin. This is the root of our problem. It is that our God-given desires from the very beginning of our creation get deceived. They get lied to. You see, we're born with natural desires from God, desires within that drive us to seek satisfaction. Without desire, you would not, when you felt hungry, go get something to eat. You just would sit there and you would probably end up dying. Without desire, you wouldn't seek relationship with people. Without desire, you wouldn't seek to know God. And so desires are a natural part of life. And so what Satan does is he takes those God-given desires And the first thing he does is he casts doubt about satisfaction of those desires being possible. So let's take, for instance, relationship. Satan casts doubt that either doing relationship the way that God has instructed you will work, or you probably can't have relationship anyway. You know, no one will want you. No one's going to really, you know, look at you. Look what you do. Look what you've done. Look how you look. No one's probably going to want you. So you probably can't have satisfaction in relationship anyway. He casts doubt. And then out of that doubt that godly satisfaction can be found, he then all of a sudden conveniently offers you an alternative. It says, look, you could have satisfaction this way, and it's a lot easier, it's a lot better, and you'll probably enjoy it a lot more. Every sin, I left you with, I left you with this last week, every sin, every desire in you that is sinful, has within it a seed of godliness. And this is where it becomes kind of um, uh, you almost a pursuit when you go on the path of life. That's why I had Rob read that text tonight for us in Matthew chapter 7. This becomes the pursuit that when you begin to see a, a hunger for godliness and then all of a sudden you still have sinful desires, instead of just shutting your mind off to those sinful desires and saying, oh, I can't think about that, I'm just supposed to be a Christian, God actually says, hey, Look into those things and say, what am I really wanting? What am I really after? I gave you the example last week of when I was in college at Ohio University. I began to struggle with and want and desire so much to go out to, with all the people I live with, to go out to uh, you know, the bars where everybody was partying. I was desiring that a lot. And as you think back through that, you ask yourself, what was I really desiring? It wasn't the location. In fact, those places were disgusting. It wasn't... Um, necessarily the food or even the drink that I wanted because if you took everybody away and you left the food and the drink I wouldn't want that food and drink what I was hungering for was connection was people was relationship what the Bible calls fellowship koinonia closeness okay so what about pornography then what is the godly desire that's hidden within the sin of pornography And on the surface, it seems like, well, sex is probably the natural answer, right? God put within mankind a desire to reproduce, to have sex. So sex is probably the desire that leads us then to pornography as an alternative to sex. Um, you know, I can say that, that I think that on the surface, I see how that seems like it might be the answer. But it's not necessarily the answer that is underneath all of this. There's a deeper desire than just sex. 
Because you'll find that sex is more complex than just hunger and thirst. It's not just another appetite. Sex is not like wanting food or wanting drink because it's much more complex than that. Um, it is a way more, it's way more than an appetite to be satisfied. The desire inside pornography is more than just human experience of orgasm. It's more than that. There was a research study that was done um, about three years ago that surveyed thousands of men who were active pornography watchers. That means at least once a month. They were engaged actively in watching pornography. And what they were trying to find out is what causes you to go watch it? What, what, what makes you want to go watch it? And they interviewed these guys, thousands upon thousands of men, and they got three answers that stood out above the rest. The first answer was visual stimula stimulation. The second answer was stress relief. And the third answer was, I'm just addicted. Now here's what's interesting about this. You have visual stimula stimulation, stress relief, and then you have addiction. Two of those are not really answers from the men. They're not real answers. They were what the men were saying, but they're not an actual answer of what's going on. For instance, visual stimulation is not the reason you go to pornography. What I mean is the man is not visually stimulated and then goes to define visual stimu stimulation. Does that make sense? So he's not sitting here saying, you know what? I'm kind of bored, nothing going on. Visually stimulated, I'm going to go find pornography. Something's driving him to go be visually stimulated. Does that make sense? Does, you see with me? So that's not really the answer. The man saying visual stimulation is probably really what he's trying to say is I have a hunger for sex. I want sex. And it's not available to him at the moment. If he, he may be married and maybe his wife does not want to have sex or she's not home, she's not available, or it may be that he's single and there's not an available suitor for his desire for sex. So he can't have sex, although he wants to have sex is probably the first answer. Now, the third answer was addiction. Now, addiction is a convenient answer, but it's not the reason he went there the first time. There had to be a reason that made him go get addicted to pornography. And so that leaves us down with one answer, and the answer was stress relief. Now, when these guys were pressed to explain what they meant when they said stress relief, I just feel stressed, so I want to go escape and release with some pornography. When they pressed them to explain what they meant by that, here's how they answered it. There's a few answers. One man said, I just want to escape my low self-esteem. Just have somebody. One guy said, you know, I just have a lot of shame and I just feel really lonely and isolated and it kind of just makes me forget about that for a while. And there was another guy that said, my work and my life are so full of pressure. I just need to go get lost in something and forget about it. Now, see what all these answers are saying is I go to porn because I don't feel like I have any other place to go for relief. That's what that answer is really saying. Both of those. Whether it's shame, low self-esteem, loneliness, fear, and so I just don't like being alone, so I'm going to run to porn. Or it's, listen, I've got people all around me. I've just got a high-pressure job, and I've got relationships that are so demanding. I just want to shut the door every now and then and just escape from it. What both of those people are saying in those extremes is, I have no place to go to deal with or find relief except pornography. What they're screaming is loneliness. 
I'm all alone. Even the man that might have a wife and kids and a job with coworkers that he likes, all the pressure of his life, if he can't go to his friends, his spouse, or maybe his boss at work, he doesn't have anybody to go to to find relief. Does that make sense? And so loneliness is driving them there. And when they're all alone, and in that loneliness, pornography whispers, I'm here, I'm all you need, and I'll comfort you. I'll make you feel lost. Forget about it, and you'll find relief. So what is the godly desire within pornography? It's not just a hunger for sex. It's actually our original hunger for intimacy. That's really what we long for. Um, Sex is an expression, a fruit of intimacy. But what mankind longs for is intimacy, to be close with somebody. And so this is what our heart really wants. So let's ask uh, ourselves this question. What is intimacy? And so I've asked Eric to dim the lights and turn the music on. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's not what intimacy is. What is intimacy, right? What most of us think about when we hear the word intimacy is like a romantic dinner. Intimate, right? Give me the table that's kind of intimate in the corner, you know, private. Or we think about actually having, you know, sexual relations with somebody. That, that's, that's an intimate act is what it's called sometimes. Um, intimacy, th- those, like, like a private dinner, a long conversation, all you guys, um, sex, are the fruit of two people that have intimacy. They are not the seed of intimacy. Okay, let me say that again. Dinner, sex, talking, revealing, all of those are the fruit of two people that have intimacy. They don't, they're not the seed that create intimacy. Okay, let me give you a phonetic tool to help you learn what intimacy means. You guys ever heard the word, um, you know the, the Bible term justified, right? And the the Bible term justified, there's a great way to remember what it means. You could say it this way phonetically. It's just as if I had not done something. Justified, do you hear it in there? And that's a good way to remember what it means to be justified. It's just as if I hadn't done this thing that it's wrong. Well, intimacy also has a phonetic teaching tool that's very, very powerful. Let me give it to you. Intimacy means this. In to me, you see. Intimacy. In to me, you see. You see, intimacy is the revealing of your true self to another. Intimacy is to be fully known. And that's exactly why our God is an intimate God. Because this is Him revealing Himself to us. Telling Him, telling us who He really is. And this is what we were created for from the very beginning, to be intimate with God to actually reflect what has always existed from the before time ever began in the Holy Trinity of God. You have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit that exist in joyous, peaceful, beautiful intimacy. So what went wrong? Well, when Adam and Eve sinned, that was the very first thing that they lost. Is what they lost is what the Bible calls later in Scripture is righteousness. And and that word has just been drugged through the religious mud and we've kind of like lost really what it means. Think of righteousness this way as as, um, in in a workforce, righteousness is like your resume. 
Um, if there's a job posting and all the qualifications are there and you feel like you measure up to those qualifications, you get your resume out, right? And you list all of your um, experience, all of the things you've done, all of your awards, and you go up to that HR person or maybe a hiring manager and you present them that resume and you say, look, I meet all the qualifications. What I've accomplished, my work record makes me able to be accepted for this job. That's righteousness. Maybe in an academic setting, if you're thinking about going to graduate school and you finished um, uh, undergraduate school and you've got your bachelor's degree, righteousness in an academic setting would be like your transcript. So there might be standards by which you can enter into a certain school to be accepted. And so you got to print your grades and the classes you've taken. That's your right. That's your record of performance that gets you acceptance. Well, here's what happened. The moment sin entered the world and sin enters our world, we've lost our record of perform- our performance record that gains us access. We've lost that. We've lost righteousness. And so we've lost the ability to be intimate with God and out of fear, even intimate with each other. Um, therefore, we stopped all this. We, we stopped being intimate and lost that from the very beginning. That's really what we're hungering for. Tim Keller describes Genesis 2 and 3 in a very unique way. He says that the deepest longing of mankind is to be both fully known, fully uh, you know, exposed, fully known, but also fully loved. And he would go on to say that for us to be fully loved by somebody, but not known, that means to still hold secrets, to not be known, will never change us. That's why many of us don't change in Christianity because we know that we're loved. We quote John 3.16, but our relationship privately with God has very little confession and very little repentance. We're not open with Him. So we're not known, but we're loved. It doesn't change us. But then he said to be fully known, but then not loved, rejected, is our greatest nightmare. That's our greatest fear. But then to be fully known and fully loved is transformational. It changes you. And those of you that have have experienced this in in earthly relationships, hopefully in your marriage, that that you don't have to pretend, you don't have to be who you're not, you don't have to hide, you can just be fully known, yes, warts and all, and fully loved, know how safe that is, how lovely that is. And so that's really what we're wrong in our sin. We lost that. So I'm going to give you quickly how to have some intimacy. Um, the great thing about these steps to, to develop intimacy is that you don't necessarily have to be married to produce this, to practice this. You can begin practicing intimacy with some close, same-gendered friends in a relationship. Uh, I would encourage everyone to be actively pursuing intimacy with God. You will not change if you don't pursue intimacy with God. Um, And most certainly, if you are married, whether you are struggling with pornography or not, this is an important thing for you to be practicing and working towards in your marriage. So how do we cultivate intimacy? What's the process for us to have intimacy? Well, let me just say that we learn from God um, how to have intimacy because he showed us how to develop it. He showed us how to create it. In Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, you have the record of the giving of the Ten Commandments. And most of the time we look at those things and think, eh, that's God's kind of, you know, laws of the land. You know, God's just telling us what to do. And so he has 10 commandments. But if you get into the language, God is actually revealing through the 10 commandments how he's going to be covenant in a relationship with those people. That's what it's about. 
This is how we're going to love each other this way. And so there's three principles in the Ten Commandments I want to tell you quickly about. The first one is this. You have to have priority to have intimacy. You have to have priority. The very first commandment that God laid out for his people in Exodus 20 was this. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. You will never walk down the the pathway of intimacy with your spouse, with a friend, with God, if there is not prioritization of that person. Just think about this. What makes our spouse or even our kids stop coming and talking to us? One of the major reasons that we just don't really think about is this, that we display to them that they're interrupting our priorities through deep exhales, eye rolls, you know, turn the deep, what is it? What we're communicating is that person is not a priority to us. And over time, that will make our spouse and our children stop coming and letting us see into their life, letting us know them. Priority is essential. It is the very first step into intimacy. See, the reality with it, priority is that you can't schedule this. You can't schedule intimacy. I can't tell my children, I can't tell my wife, Tuesday from 8.15 to 8.35 is our time to be, you know, really intimate and to know each other. And so during that block of time, I need you to come and just pour your heart out to me, okay? Tell me how your week's been going. Tell me what you're, you know, nervous or concerned about. Let, let's talk. A, I just can't do that. And so we've got to be available. We've got to be present, That's one of the massive things that we're losing in our godliness. You know, we're created in the image of God. And one of the things that is true about God and his sovereignty is that he is omnipresent. And we are robbing the godliness of our presence by having our face shoved in front of some version of a screen all the time. We're not present with people. That's not godly. Okay, so priority is number one. Number two, we need to have fidelity. Now, Fidelity first comes across as just the idea of being faithful, and that's true. You know, we should not be giving ourselves to another sexually. That, that is a, the highest priority that we ought to be doing in our fidelity. But I want you to think a little bit deeper. When God finished telling Israel about the Ten Commandments, what they were, that, how they were going to govern their relationship with each other and, and share love, he then said to them, you shall not turn to the right or the left. And what happens oftentimes is people look at God and they say, man, he's such an exacting judge. He has no mercy, no grace, man. He's just, you know, he's such a hard line. You can't turn from the right or the left. In fact, the opposite is quite true about God. He's full of grace, always ready to forgive. Mercy's new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. But in his love for us, there's also his longing for our holiness. He wants what's best for us. And he calls for our fidelity. And so God, when he was revealing himself to Israel, he was telling them in the Ten Commandments not just how to behave, but how to relate to him. He's saying, here's what we need to do if we're going to relate to each other. You can't covet. You can't murder. You can't um, envy. All these things, lying and not having Sabbath, are going to wreck us being in relationship. And so fidelity is just as much about wanting and fighting for the extinction of love so that it doesn't happen, so that we stay together as it is anything else. And so we have to learn, like God was revealing himself to us in that moment in Exodus 20, he was showing you how we interact with him in love. If we're in a spousal relationship, we have to learn how to love our spouse 
learn about her, learn about him, and, and what it takes to express that love to them, and then be consistent with that. Lacking consistency will derail intimacy. One day you're available and you're, you're listening and you're, you're open to them, and then the next day you're cold and turned off. If you do that every day back and forth, it'll wreck intimacy. Let me give you the last one. So priority, fidelity, and the last one is acceptance. Acceptance is the creation of space for intimacy to actually happen. You will not reveal yourself if there's not space for you to be accepted. If you live in a world, if you live in a relationship where you are constantly under the weight of condemnation, constantly under criticism, constantly under contempt and, and, and sneers and jeers, if you're constantly in that, you will have less and less bravery to be open and honest with that person. Intimacy requires acceptance. And one of the things that God said from the very beginning in Exodus 20 was, before he even gave the commandments, he said to them this way, very personally, I am the Lord, your God. I'm your God. Meaning that there's all these other nations, but I'm yours and I'm here and I've chosen you. He says in Exodus chapter 18, or Deuteronomy 18, pardon me, he says, I have loved you because I love you. If there's not a fuller reason of, uh, of a fuller definition of acceptance, I haven't seen one. Where God says, why, why do you love us, God? He says, I've loved you because I love you. There's nothing deeper. In, there's no deeper acceptance than just that. It's a great answer uh, that we ought to think about with acceptance. So, if this is what our hearts want, right? Intimacy, and here's how we're going to get intimacy. Here's how we're going to go after this. And, and the very first step is for us to be cultivating and creating this with God so that we have um, the eternal joy and peace that comes from Him, whether we're married or single. We can be pursuing this. What is the deal with sex then? Why would God give us this drive and this energy? I'm sure He could have figured out a way to populate the earth and, and to repopulate the earth any different way. Um, what is sex and what was it for then? What, what is it for? And we've got to do some... Uh, sexual education because this is happening. Sex ed is happening, um, whether it's on TV or if, if it isn't even in the school system, but we've got to talk about it from a biblical perspective. There are three main historical views of sex that have permeated the world. You've probably watched and seen them. You may not know the terms for them, but you know them. And so I'm going to tell you them. The first one is uh, people that view the view sex as sexual realism. And what that is, is just saying sex is just a biological appetite. Like when you're hungry, go eat. When you want to have sex, so long as you do it in a safe manner, go do it. Just satisfy the desire. And when you satisfy the desire, you'll be good for a while. Just like if you eat lunch, you won't need to eat until dinner. Sex is just an appetite biologically. The Greeks and the Romans were mainly the ones who believed this way um, in antiquity. The second way, the second view of sexuality is this. It was called sexual Platonianism. And that is that sex is just a passion of the lower physical body. But what really matters is the higher things of spiritual life. And so sex is just kind of a necessary evil to procreate, you know, on the earth. But it's kind of a dirty thing and we just don't really talk about it. We just, you know, when necessary, we have to do it. But it's not really of the upper echelon of things of life. It's not spiritual. And this was really... Um, uh, those who you know came back, they were, they were Jewish people who were religious, who lived in the Greek-speaking worlds, and then came back to Jerusalem during Jesus' time to live. And so they had been educated in you know a lot of Greek culture, 
but they still wanted to be very religious. And they, they, a lot of the Gnostics came out of this. And so they looked at life as saying, what matters is spiritual things. The body is, you know, just material. It doesn't matter. And so sex is just kind of an ugly, dirty, gross thing, but it's a necessary evil. The third view is this. It came about later, and it was romanticism. And if there's ever a worldview that we are just under the delusion of, it's this, romanticism. We are just swept. This is romantic comedy stuff. I mean, we all joke and know that the thing, those aren't real, right? That, that the movies that are at Marcus Theater right now is not how life really works. You ever notice those people never have a mortgage, don't really have jobs, but they have great apartments in New York? Like, you just can't do that, right? Like, Lisa and I both work, and I drive a Sonata that's from 2003. It doesn't happen, you know? Okay, romanticism says this. Now listen to young people, okay? This was about mid-16th century is when this started to get popular. It says that sex is an expression of your identity. And what it said was humans were fully alive at the very beginning, and all of our desires were good, but society has stifled our desires. How dare they? And so you have a desire for, for sex, you should express that and express it however you want, with whomever you want, regardless of gender, and yes, even under some of these delusions, regardless of age. Is that not the message of our culture today? That sex is personal identity. That's why there's words like pride associated with sexuality. Because sex is your identity. I am a straight or I am a gay man. It's, it's part of your identity now. It's been pushed to the front of saying, my sexuality is my self-expression. That is just absolutely delusional. Sex is not your identity. Your sexual expression is not your identity. And so... Um, what really that was, was that, you know, they looked down on society for stifling their sexuality and thought, I should just be able to express myself however I want. Now, the biblical view is different than all three of those. Because naturally, what we think about, most people accuse Christianity of as being like the second one, right? Sex is kind of dirty. We don't talk about it. Nobody can say it, you know. Um, that's usually what we think about, but that's not true. See, the biblical view is this. Number one, sex is very good. In creation, after God made Adam and Eve, God said it's very good. Anybody find it to be coincidental that he said good, 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 and then he makes Adam and Eve, they have sex, and he says very good? That was a joke. <laughs> just affirming that God is a man. No, I'm just kidding. All right. <laughs> so contrary to those who see sex as dirty, something we can't talk about, something that should be hidden, you know, something of the lower part of life, no, the Bible affirms that sex is very good and beautiful. The second thing the Bible says that sex and sexual desires are broken like every other desire because of sin. And sex and your desire for sex cannot be trusted as a guide for your life. Like every other desire cannot be trusted. And so in fact, God would actually tell us to flee our lusts. And so contrary to those who say sex is just an appetite, do it when you feel like it, God says, no, sex is not something that you can trust because we'll make an idol out of it. We'll love it too much. Third thing, the Bible says sex and love are not primarily, hear me, about your individual happiness. 
Sex and love are not about your individual happiness. Contrary to those that say sexuality is just self-expression, me doing what is real about me and getting what I want to get, the language of Scripture about sex and love is radically different than the romantic view of our culture. You see, the Bible views sex and love not as a means of self-fulfillment or self-identity or self-getting, but a radical way that you self-give. Love and sex is the arena in which you give of yourself to another fully in a way that you can't in any other arena in life. That's what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible would say that marriage, love, sex, all of those things are your clearest, your clearest parable of how you relate to God. When God in the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 was like, you know what? I'm going to make the world. I'm going to make Adam and Eve. And here's these people. How can I explain to human beings who have a lower mind than me how to relate to me? And God said, I know exactly how I'll do it. I'll create marriage. And I'll create within them a desire for deep intimacy. And I'll let them express that intimacy in a way in which they give of themselves to another, yet feel incredible joy in it. Beautiful, right? Brilliant. God was from the very beginning teaching us how to know him. So why did he create sex? Sex is a sacrament. It's a physical expression of a deeper, higher truth. He created it for procreation. Isn't it amazing that in sex we actually participate with God in creation? Actually, it's the only place that we're not just rearranging current material. We're actually creating something. Sex is for delight. Sex is the greatest analogy, as I said, of the joy that can be found in self-giving. That's the truth of the world, that, that when you give of yourself, you have your highest ecstasy. And sex is a parable that when you give of yourself in intimacy to another, you have ecstasy. And thirdly, sex is ceremony. Oneness in the Bible is always a matter of covenant, not just a matter of emotion. That, that emotion is, is how people think that you should decide whether to have sex or not today. You know, it's like, I really love this person. My emotions for them are tied together. So maybe we should have sex now because we've been dating long enough and we kind of like each other. In the Bible, it says oneness is always marked by covenant, binding covenantal agreement. I am yours. You are mine. And like the Hebrews used to say the word dode, I'm not leaving. I will never leave. And in that covenant of I will not leave, God allows for the expression of sex in openness. And God's covenants have renewal ceremonies, just like every week we take communion to remember what the Lord has done and our baptism into him. So there's a one-time act of baptism like marriage, and there's a weekly renewal of that covenant. Sex acts as a renewal ceremony of the oneness that is supposed to be in your entire marital life, in economy or in um, finances or in life or in details and raising children. There's supposed to be oneness And sex is a reminder that that all love and sex is about self-giving, not self-fulfillment. Okay, I'm done. That was a lot. You did great. As you can see, we're dealing with just more than a physical or even emotional matter. Um, This is spiritual. Marriage and sex is deeply spiritual. And why this matters is a, a few reasons. One... For those, of the, for those that are struggling in a distorted view of sex or in a distorted practice, my plea to you is that you're missing greater heights of joy, greater satisfaction. You're missing greater pleasure. But the second thing is this. 
people of faith that know God are the witness to the world about who God really is. And marriage is the most profound, speechless sermon we can give about God. And that's why this matters. I'm going to leave you with this thought tonight. Underneath your desire for sex is really your hunger for God. Let that, think, let that thought sit on your mind. And next week we will talk about practical way forward for healing of those things that are broken in us in sexuality. So when God created mankind, like I said, he had options to order and to structure the world. And he said, I want to teach them who I am. And so he created love, he created marriage, and he created the celebration of sex in that marriage so that we could see the clearest way about himself, his love for us, his jealousy for us, and his burning passion to be one with us. So if you're single and you're struggling, take all of that energy and that passion that's in you. Believe me, we understand, even those of us that are older, understand that energy and let it drive you. Let it drive you with all the energy in the world to be intimate with God. Get all of that energy out. Learn as much as you can. Confess to God. Repent. Bring people around you that also are passionate about God and grow close to Him so that when the time is right for you to marry, boy, you'll be so ready on a foundation that cannot be shaken. If you're married, let the same desire that you have that is driving you maybe places you shouldn't be drive you first of all to God and second of all directly back to your spouse where you may need to, if there is a problem, confession, repentance, openness. Here's how you lead. Leadership is the willingness to go first. Leadership doesn't need a title. It doesn't need respect and honor. Leadership is this. I'm willing to go first. And if you're in a marriage where intimacy is struggling and you're looking at each other and saying, well, if I do this, she's going to say this. Or if I do this, he's going to treat me this way. Somebody has to be willing to go first. Press into intimacy. And I think on the other side, you'll find a deep greatness of joy and pleasure that you're missing. Boy, we want to help you with that. We're available tonight to help you with that. Like I said, there's going to be a lot of resources on the website here soon. Um, We're available for you. You can email us, call us, text us. We want to sit with you, walk with you, help you, love you, and watch you experience the great joy of God. Uh, Let's stand and sing.